We are going to pick up from, uh, from last week where we were thinking about this very important passage concerning Jesus saying that he was going to go to the cross. He was going to suffer. He was going to die, or sorry, suffer, be rejected. He was going to be, um, re- die and he would be raised, raised again. So we learned that Jesus said this to his disciples, which uh, was very shocking for them. Then we went on and we heard about how Peter was someone who said, no, look, this is never going to happen to you, Lord, not to you. This is not going to happen for your particular role. And there was that great rebuke when Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I just want to pause and think, well, how did you go with that this last week? How did you go with being concerned for the things of God? Or were you more concerned for human concerns? And those who weren't with us, it's a good thing to reflect upon over the last week. If you weren't here last week, of course, we see there the importance of being concerned for the concerns of God and not merely human concerns. We went on then and thought about the very great call of denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following Jesus. How did you go? How did you, well, obviously you weren't martyred. Uh, that's good news. Um, how did that go? A good question to be able to, to ask. We then began to think about the strength and the help that we can actually derive to be able to live out this particular life. And we were encouraged by seeing that Jesus has gone before us to the extent of even dying upon a cross so that the way to God could actually be opened. We were encouraged by that. And we heard that wonderful quote from Timothy Keller, when someone gave himself utterly for you, how can you not give yourself utterly to him? Which is just so important. And hopefully that gives you great motivation to be able to follow Jesus. We heard about realising the surpassing worth of what it means to be saved, to have a saved life, to have spiritual life. And we saw that in that verse, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? So hopefully for those who weren't with us, that's a little bit of an update in terms of where we've been. And for those who were here last Sunday, it captures something of what we were thinking about. But I want to take us on to some new territory and to be able to think about two more helps for us to be able to deny ourselves, take up our cross and to follow Jesus. Two very helpful ones and then move on and consider the transfiguration. So the third great help after the first one being um, seeing that Jesus has gone before us, even to the point of dying on the cross. The second one, realising the surpassing worth of a saved life. The third one is being aware of the shame of rejecting Jesus. This is the third reason why we should deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. We read in verse 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, that's not frightening. I don't know what is. How terrible would it be to be, um, to be ashamed, for, for Lord Jesus to be ashamed of us because we were ashamed of him? That would be terrible. It's very sad, isn't it, that we can refrain from living out the Christian life to the extent that we should because of peer pressure around us. What is cool, what is acceptable. 
It's as though the people around us are brilliant, holy, perfect. And of course, we should look to them as par for the course, the yardstick for our lives. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that they are an adulterous and sinful generation. So why on earth would you want to use them as your yardstick? Why would you want to use their gauge of what is honourable and what is shameful? Don't be deceived. We need to make sure that we build our lives and live our lives according to God's word and his holy standards. They should not dictate what is right or wrong. And we see here a great warning that we should not be ashamed of Jesus and his words. Otherwise, he will be ashamed of us when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Now, there's the first mind teaser for us. When Jesus comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. What's that talking about? Well, for many years, I thought that that was referring to the second coming. Jesus has gone into heaven now and he one day will return. That's what we refer to the second coming. Or if you really want to be fancy, the parousia. Is that what it's referring to? Well, it may interest you to know that the average Jewish person would not have thought of the second coming when they heard that particular verse uh, read or, or when they were able to read it. Instead, it is a reflection upon a chapter in the Old Testament from Daniel chapter 7 which speaks about the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days and receiving authority, glory and sovereign power. It is actually not him coming to this world. No, it is him going to God. And he would be ashamed of us if we're ashamed of him once he has gone to his throne in heaven. So that is what that passage is actually referring to. So it's not him being ashamed when he comes, it's him being ashamed of us now, at this very moment. And I don't think that we would want to be in that situation of causing shame to come upon us. So that is the third reason why we should deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus. The fourth reason is, um, the, well, the fourth uh, aid that we receive is that we are able to be reassured that everything will be as Jesus says. And we see this in verse 1 of chapter 9. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So what we see here is Jesus saying is that, is that there will be this time where you will see a demonstration of the kingdom of God coming with power. Now that must be surely welcome. If they're going to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow Jesus, it would be a great aid to have some sort of example, some sort of demonstration of the power of God, the power of the kingdom of God. Now what is that actually referring to? Is that referring to the kingdom of God coming in terms of Jesus returning to this world? Well, no, it doesn't make sense because it says that there are some here who will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. So it cannot be referring to the second coming. All sorts of other suggestions have been put forward that it refers to Jesus' death on the cross and the symbolic tearing of the curtain in the temple, if you're familiar with that part of scripture. Others have said that it's referring to the resurrection. We see great power there. 
Perhaps it's referring to that thing of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, of him coming to the Ancient of Days. Perhaps it's referring to the Spirit coming at Pentecost. Perhaps it's referring to the dynamic growth of the church despite great opposition. They, they were all examples of great power being demonstrated. Or was it something else? Was it referring to the transfiguration? You see, in the next verse, in verse 2, we are told something unique in Mark's Gospel. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led, him, led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Now the unique thing here specifically that I want to begin to mention is that it mentions something very precise after six days. Nowhere else in Mark's Gospel is he as specific in terms of a time frame that elapses between two particular situations. These passages are intricately linked. They are meant to be read together. And we see the very next thing after he's told us that there are some who won't taste death before they see the kingdom of God, that it has come with power, we then see this transfiguration arise, which is very intriguing. We're told here that Jesus took Peter, James and John up a high mountain and Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, um, that is, of course, for something to be changed in form. And that's just what Jesus Christ had happened to him as he was transfigured. There he was transfigured before them, we read in verse 2. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. It was truly amazing. And then we read that Elijah and Moses appeared before them talking with Jesus. That was esteemed company. You've got Moses, Elijah and Jesus and they are talking and then you've got these disciples, Peter, James and John, who are looking on. Now the fact that Moses and Elijah are mentioned is very significant because these were both prophets. They were also people who both faced rejection. And they point to the final prophet who would come. And of course, that final prophet who would come is in fact Jesus. So what we see, first of all, is that Jesus is important in God's plan. It was Jesus who was actually there with Moses and with Elijah. The point I want you to see is that Jesus is absolutely important. Peter wants to put up three shelters for each of them. He didn't know what to say. He was baffled. He was bewildered. Um, although, to his credit, there was thinking that God would come one day and dwell with his people. And the idea of this idea of a shelter is very much related to a concept of a tabernacle. And so that was, had the idea also of God coming to dwell. So what Peter was doing was actually something that he, he had some knowledge in his background, in terms of his background thinking, but he was still someone who was acting because he was frightened. A cloud appeared and covered them, which is very reminiscent of a cloud covering uh, Mount Sinai. And then a voice came from the cloud, and we read in verse 7, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. 
What incredible words. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. It's very similar to the words that were spoken by God to Jesus when he was baptised. They read as follows. You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Here it's slightly different. This is my son, whom I love. Well, we had that in Mark chapter 1. But it says, very importantly, listen to him. In the original language, that strong language, it's a command. Listen to him. It is, of course, listening specifically to what Jesus has been saying about his death, that he would have to go and die, which they had great difficulty in comprehending. They thought that that would be a shameful way for the Messiah to come to a terrible end. Suddenly, they could only see Jesus in verse 8, which shows us that Jesus is in fact now the focus. Jesus is in fact better than Moses and Elijah. They were two of the greatest figures of the Old Testament. And now they have vanished and only Jesus is there. Can you just see how important Jesus Christ actually is? Furthermore, Jesus is more than a prophet. He was foreshadowed, fulfilling what Rita read from Deuteronomy chapter 18. He was this prophet who would come, but he was more than a prophet. He was also God's son and still is to this day. Absolutely incredible. Jesus told them not to tell anyone what they had seen until he had risen from the dead. The disciples, of course, then in verse 11 to 13, have this incredibly interesting dialogue with Jesus. Let me read this to you. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. In this particular passage, he's saying, yes, Elijah has come. That has been fulfilled in John the Baptist. But there is this Son of Man who would have to suffer. And if John the Baptist fulfilled the role of Elijah... And he was murdered, where well, we can expect no less for Jesus Christ. Jesus was someone who could have entered into glory with Moses and Elijah on that mountaintop. He was God's son. He was transfigured before them. It was spectacular. But what did he do? He came down that mountain and he went to the cross. And he went to the cross for you and for me, so that our sins could be forgiven. Jesus is incredibly important in terms of God's plan. We are to listen to him and specifically what he is saying about his death, but we are to listen to him generally. We are to be people who submit our lives to him. Whatever he says, we are to actually obey and we are to do this because Jesus loves us so much that he would die for us. So Jesus is very, very special. He's done something incredibly special for us. And we are to be people who continue to listen to him.
Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so very much for what we do read in this incredible passage of how Jesus was transfigured. We thank you for this clear guidance that you give that we are to listen to him. And we pray great thanks to you, Father, for the very fact that he died upon the cross so that we could be forgiven. We pray that you would move our heart's allegiance to submission to him and that we would be empowered by you to live each day for him. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.